Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. Episode 5, Envy. Oh, I envy you. You're about to listen to this podcast. You lucky, jammy, lucky, jammy thing, you. Now, where to begin? Do you remember Ayn Rand, the ornery but influential apostle of individualism who believed that altruism, collective feeling, social cooperation and empathy itself were for losers and that we all have a duty to pursue our own self-interest. We talked about her a great deal when we looked at avarice stroke greed. Well, I talked about her. You listened, drifted off, tutted with disapproval or fondled yourself as I droned on into the purple distance. Sorry to haul her back, but here she is on Envy. Do you know the hallmark of a second-rater? It's resentment of another man's achievement. Those touchy mediocrities who sit trembling lest someone's work prove greater than their own. They have no inkling of the loneliness that comes when you reach the top. The loneliness for an equal, for a mind to respect and an achievement to admire. They bare their teeth at you from out of their rat holes, thinking that you take pleasure in letting your brilliance dim them, while you'd give a year of your life to see a flicker of talent anywhere among them. They envy achievement, and their dream of greatness is a world where all men have become their acknowledged inferiors. Wow. We are all familiar with perhaps rather less bombastic and preposterous outbursts than that, which come from the successful, said in heavy inverted commas, who regard all criticism of their wealth, fame or power as being actuated solely by envy and resentment. Tax the rich? Why, that's the politics of envy. Express outrage at widening levels of inequality and flagrant tax sheltering? Socialistic resentment, nothing more. Envy is used to close any argument by characterizing protest as small-minded jealousy. Yet, capitalism thrives and expands by encouraging the very capacity for envy that its fiercest advocates so grandly repudiate. Of course, advertisers and marketeers prefer words like um, aspirational and desirable to envious or covetous, but they're exploiting the same instinct. Consumer purchasing from home decor, white goods, digital devices, fashion, food and motoring, is fueled by the relentless offering up of dazzling images of lifestyles that are precisely designed to act 
activate our envy glands and fill us with yearning desire. The Instagram generation exploits this drooling covetousness with even more precision and brazen shamelessness. Just as the wolves of Wall Street howled that greed is good, so the madmen of Madison Avenue and Silicon Valley maintain that envy is good, too. They are the, the human impulses that power capitalism and economic growth. And human is the operative word here. You can, with level and objective observation and only a pinch of anthropomorphic projection, clearly see that... Animals are capable of gluttony and lust and sloth, uh, that they can exhibit anger and greed, and even, when displaying, courting or delineating territory, for example, an element of pride. But I think it hard to picture an envious animal. The overwhelming desire for some other animal's food, burrow, territory, flesh or mate exists, of course, but... Except for a bit of prowling, staking out and waiting, it is acted on with a snatch, a pounce, and a declaration of intent. Envy. Envy is a slow burner, a dripping corrosive acid that eats into us as we try to sleep. Envy doesn't seize and maul and bite. Envy gnaws, envy seethes, envy broods. The suppurating boil of envy swells and smarts. It can burst its poison out in all kinds of forms, outwards into violence, hate, anger, theft and destruction, or inwards into misery, despair, self-pity and self-loathing. It is... For what it's worth, perhaps the least attractive of the seven deadly sins. Pride can be glorious, or most often vainglorious. Even sloth can have a dreamy and admirable splendour. Gluttony can be eye-popping and outrageous and marvellous in its abandon. Lust has its moments, and anger can be magnificent in its passion, but envy... Envy is ugly, 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 mean, base, and unappealing. Envy swiftly leads to a kind of hate. You either hate those you envy for their good fortune, or you hate yourself for not having made it. Either way, that's not good. As Oscar Wilde noted in his letter from prison to his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, hate destroys everything around it except itself. In truth, the hatred we feel for others we envy is only a projection outwards of our inward self-hate. Actually, I'd, I'd more accurately characterise it as not self-hate, but as something worse. It's the ghastly, slimy worm of self-pity that burrows in and eats one from the inside. It is the truth of all the sins, of course. They come not from without, but within. But less of that, you might say. Come on, Stephen. If you're a capitalist, envy is indeed the necessary motor that drives the virtuous circle of growth. And if you're anti-capitalist, then envy is the oxygen that feeds the righteous flames of indignation. It fuels the cleansing fire that will one day burn the rotten structure to the ground. 
Yes, but most of us are neither root-and-branch revolutionaries nor free-market absolutists. Most of us are lost and confused in the middle and both frightened and infuriated by the certainty and self-righteousness of the clamorous. Far be it from me to take the side of the super-rich. But if we are very, very honest, there is a distinction we must in all good faith draw between the reasonable disgust we may feel at injustice, unfairness and the vulgar display of riches and our own unattractive, less-than-righteous, gnawing envy. We should accept the lamentable truth that we really can covet, yearn, hanker and burn with desire for what others have and that we can't pretend that it's all a noble feeling of indignation on behalf of the cause of social justice or a link in the golden chain of consumerist prosperity for all. It's much more personal than that, if we're honest. We fantasise being that rich, that powerful, that gorgeous, that entitled, that noticed. We mutter and we gripe at what we consider their good fortune and what they insist are the rewards for their hard work, commitment, persistence and talent. Every successful achiever, still with the inverted commas already, seems to delight in telling us how their achievements were always the result of diligence, determination, endurance, toil, and a heroic refusal to give in. We, on the other hand, see only luck, luck, and luck. One of the founding figures of sociology, Max Weber, had this to say, The fortunate man is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate. He needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it, and above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. Good fortune thus wants to be legitimate fortune. We uh, cheer such an observation, for we have an equal and opposite desire to believe that such people's fortune is illegitimate and undeserved. That's one thing. But there is a tendency, which the honest amongst us surely cannot deny, to go further. We tend towards dehumanising the celebrity and the billionaire, such that their misfortunes make us laugh and any suffering that befalls them can be discounted. The next-door neighbour of envy is the gloat, schadenfreude. The Germans call it the delight we feel in the misfortunes of others, especially those we regard as over-endowed with the world's goods and the world's recognition. Everyone agrees, rationally, and through observation, common sense and experience, that money cannot buy happiness. Yet the number of times we will say of a rich or famous person who complains about something, what's the matter with them? <laughs> They've got their money, haven't they? How many, when a rich person, media star or celebrity of some kind suffers a setback, confesses to a mental health condition, a suicidal impulse or perhaps an offensive press intrusion into their privacy, will derisively sneer, what have they got to moan about? They've millions in the bank. Oh, my children, what hypocrites we are. Perhaps it's not the money we resent. It's the maddening idea of other people's success. My friend, the late Gore Vidal, famously offered this 
Every time a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. He was also fond of reiterating Somerset Maugham's declaration that it is not enough to succeed, others must fail. These phrases aren't just waspy, bitchy little epigrams. There is a deep truth in them. The success of others reminds us of our own sense of failure, or worse, convinces us that others will look at us and see failure. Comparisons are, as Mrs. Malaprop liked to say, odorous, yet as mammals, it seems inevitable that we are programmed to compare ourselves, whether we like it or not. We measure each other according to job, car, income, education, make of shoes, cock or breast size, postcode, Brexit stance, supermarket and newspaper of choice. It's worth reminding ourselves that we, of course, are perfect. We are in the Goldilocks zone of just right in every sphere. If someone knows more than we do and has a better brain, they are an elitist and a snob. If they know less and are slower-witted, they are dumb, loutish oafs. If they have a bigger kitchen, they are show-offs. If a smaller, we are big-heartedly compassionate. We don't mind people being uneducated, stupid, slow and ignorant. It allows us to feel better about ourselves. We can write letters to Radio 4 and the newspapers, deprecating their inaccurate use of pronouns. And we can shake our heads at the depths of their inadequacy. But people who are sharper, better educated, have read more books, who the fuck do they think they are? Hmm? with their pretentious long words, their oh-so-grand allusions, references and bookshelves. Fuck that. The art and pastimes they prefer are boring and pretentious. They are affected, snobbish and elitist. And how easy it is for them. What do they know about the real world? So say those in the perfect zone. Meanwhile, those below that zone are thinking exactly the same about them. There seems to be a, a fixed self-consciousness about position and possession, status, so-called achievement, and a zero-sum belief that every rise up the ladder for you is a slide down the snake for me. Now, in case you think I'm being defensive about my position or reputation, deserved or not, for being smart... Believe me, I look up to those more academically and scholastically scrupulous and gifted, those with better brains and finer minds, and I am perfectly capable of seething. We can all be Salieri's shaking our fists at God for creating Mozart's whose genius eclipses and mocks our own feeble attainments. I know some people think it's all right for me. We'll come to that it's all right for you trope later. But you have to believe, if you can, that I'm as prone to all the seven deadly sins, envy included, as anyone. After all, if envy was only felt by the wholly disadvantaged and the truly unfortunate, it would hardly be a sin, would it? But just as you might disbelieve that I, with my good fortune, could envy anyone their attainments and attributes, so a... For example, Somalian mother trying to bring up her huge family in a season of drought might be astonished to think that you could envy someone on the basis of their make of car, postcode, level of education or number of social media followers. I remember Peter Cook, the comedian, having to cope not with his partner Dudley Moore's success in Hollywood, 
but with people coming up to him and commiserating and holding a look in their eye that suggested they felt for him. Maddening. Little did I know when I witnessed all that and Peter's mortification about it, that a decade or so later something similar would happen to me. My friend and comedy partner Hugh Laurie had a gigantic success in Hollywood with his TV show House. I was thrilled for him, visited him on set whenever I was over there, watched every episode with delight and admiration, but while I sincerely believed I wasn't envious, I was aware of people whispering that I must be, and some even lowering their voices when mentioning Hugh's name to me as if it were a death in the family and the sound of it might upset me. I had to examine myself very hard. Was I envious? Well, I wasn't envious of Hugh's success per se, but I'd always been envious in a kind of way since I first met him, of his athletic ability, his musical gifts, his hilariously mobile face, body and mind, his wit, and his sheer talent as, a, as an actor and performer, in the same way that I envied Ian Botham, or John McEnroe, or, or, or David Hockney, or, or anyone supremely gifted. Hugh, as it happens, is a, is a perfectionist, and his success comes from rehearsing and worrying, as well as from talent. I can only celebrate that and accept without rancour that he's better than me at lots and lots of things. And at least I can feel that what I admire are real talents and worthwhile attributes. And without false modesty, I'm aware that some people might be envious of whatever gifts nature may have granted me. Others, of course, think that I'm a lucky bastard who only got anywhere because of good fortune. But then, as, as Malvolio, a very envious fellow, said, fortune, all is fortune. You're as lucky to be born with the talent of Mozart as you are unlucky to be born without any conspicuous gifts. And it's not just what you're born with, but when and where. John Lennon was lucky to be born in a time, place and culture where talent in songwriting and popular music could lead to worldwide fame and adulation. If he had been born in the same year, but in an Inuit village in Greenland, or in the same city of Liverpool, but in 1840 instead of 1940, well, he would, like the poet Thomas Gray's undiscovered flower, have bloomed unseen, wasting his fragrance on the desert air. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. I'll be back after a short interval. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Of course, the truth is, we don't really envy the Lennons, Federers or Einsteins. We're more likely to openly admire such outliers and world changers. I'm not sure I could ever trust anyone who didn't have the capacity to admire to the point of adulation those who are endowed with gifts that raise them to the glorious and transcendent. Surely the best of us are those who are unashamed to have heroes. In our youth, we tend simultaneously to deride the heroes of our parents' generation and sometimes almost blindly venerate the musical, sporting and artistic heroes of our own. But the more ordinary people who seem to receive all the world's goods without any talent or character that we think is worthwhile, how can we not be furious, for example, about those who are admired because they apply blusher, adopt a ludicrous pout and make millions from influencing people on Instagram and YouTube. Well, perhaps if I were decades younger, I'd be cross. But as it is, when I look at such creatures, I feel only a mixture of pity and revulsion for the ugliness of the cosmetic fashions amongst the young of both sexes and the vanity and fatuous shallowness of their world. But I expect that if I were their age, I would spew acid at those of my peer group who followed and hero-worshipped them and, somewhere inside, hidden from others... I'd be sick with envy and jealous rage, not for the horribly vulgar blusher lines, ugly pouts, dead eyes, and narrow horizons of such fatuous people, but at the attention, fawning admiration, and cascade of cash and luxury living that so unjustly flowed their way, because, yes, I can be as cheap and low as anyone. What kind of a fucking world is it that rewards such worthless trash, I would shout. How come I, with my higher values, better taste and worthier aims in life, am considered a nobody, while they shoulder their way into the first-class lounges of the world, their views on everything from politics, the environment and society, treated as if they were a mixture of Socrates, David Attenborough and Nelson Mandela? That is certainly how many, understandably, react. This is all rather odd coming from me, you might think, because, of course, my position, such as it is, might well cause many to put me in exactly that category of shallow celebrity who is, like most of the breed, overpaid, overpraised and overpampered. Maybe I am, with my Twitter followers and access to media channels, an influencer although I hope without hideous blusher and even more hideous pout, and in my case, my prodigious booty ass is my own, not enhanced by surgery or injections. And maybe I am envied and resented for having the life I have. I accept that, and I can't for a second disagree that I am a lucky bastard. But it's also pathetic and laughable how much time I seem to spend worrying a little about the success and apparent contented fulfilment of others. What right have I? I return to the comparison with the Somalian mother. 
Maybe all human beings are gifted or cursed, whatever our situations, with the same capacity for envy, equipped from birth with an equal quantum of covetousness. Maybe the billionaires on the Forbes rich list envy those above them with 10 or 20 billion more. You certainly hear stories of oligarchs getting in a tizzy in Monaco when a rival moors alongside them in a super yacht that's 10 foot longer or $50 million more expensive than theirs. Off they go to the shipyard to put it right. We can quote whoever it was who said, um, Dorothy Parker, perhaps? If you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the kind of people he gives it to. But really, is that so different from suburban neighbours comparing loft extensions or conservatory dimensions, or women at a party registering each other's Blarniks and Louboutins, or a student arriving at the first day in the hostel and getting in a stew because their roommate has a better laptop or more up-to-the-minute trainers? You might say in grand terms of economics or evolutionary psychology, that the health of the body politic thrives and is nourished by the systole of collaboration and the diastole of rivalry. An impulse to work together, find synergies and symbiotic economies of scale and protection through cooperation and by an opposite impulse to compete as individuals, to strive to outdo... It's how Adam Smith saw economics, the communality of markets, balanced by the individualism of self-interest. But all this forgets the human heart and its ability to fester in a toxic pool of indignation and resentment because others seem to have it better. Envy, with its acid erosion of self-belief and content, makes people very, very unhappy. You might argue that should the world be brought to rights in terms of absolute equality and an end to poverty, debt and a closure of the gap between rich and poor, then envy would disappear and that this is the way to get rid of it. I think, not because I'm against equality, that such a hope is as forlorn as can be. We will always find causes to envy others. In equal communist East Germany, where there was no unemployment and all was owned by the state, people still envied their neighbours enough to report them to the authorities. Often it was envy because the family in the crowded flat upstairs had more books and even talked about them. How dare they be so grand as to crow their learning and recite their poetry to each other? They're enemies of the people, and I shall report them to the Stasi. When Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves after tasting the fruit of the tree whereof the Lord their God spake they should not eat. I'll bet Adam looked at Eve and said, Hey, your fig leaf is bigger than mine. Mine's got a ragged edge. It's not fair. And, of course, the first sin wasn't Cain's murder of his brother Abel. It was the envy that propelled the murder. The original sin was not then the knowledge of good and evil, as Genesis puts it, but the cry repeated by every child around the world twenty times a day is not fair. And the patient rejoinder of the parent, well, life isn't fair, darling, but it should be, we cry, though where we got that idea from, it's hard to say. Fairness doesn't exist anywhere in nature, only for some reason in our minds. Altruism may exist in all kinds of species, but 
as I said earlier, surely not envy. Buddhism and Stoicism are contenders in the hugely modish world of mindfulness today. Both would suggest, and it's hard to disagree, that trying to change what you cannot change is rather foolish. That observation may seem so obvious as to provoke a nosebleed, but isn't it an obvious truth that it is always the most obvious truths in life that we humans need most to remind ourselves of? It is hard enough to change oneself, but to change others, well, that's a, a fool's errand. But we will always blame others or tell ourselves that some people have it easy, wasting our soul's energy on what is outside our zone of control. It may be true that some people have it easy. I don't know. I've never been anybody else but me. I can imagine that their lives might be easier than mine, or harder, or similar, but I can't know. The word imagination is important. Putting yourself in the shoes of others is the first step to any kind of creative art, of course, but more importantly, it's the first step towards being fully human and integrated into the world of one's fellow humans. Let's look for a second at that stage in our growth from infancy when we are first able to conceive what another human might know. They call it theory of mind. Without it, life can be difficult for ourselves and those around us. Let me demonstrate. There's a famous experiment, the false belief test, devised by Simon Baron Cohen, uncle of Sasha, as it happens. Take a group of toddlers at an age just before theory of mind develops, say between three and four years old. You have three differently coloured cups, and you let all the children see you put a gummy bear under the red one. OK? Then you ask one of the children, Sally, we'll call her, to go into the next room to fetch something. While Sally is away, the other children see the experimenter move the gummy bear from under the red cup to under the blue cup. The experimenter then asks the children this question. If I ask Sally to lift the cup with the gummy bear, which cup will she lift? How do they answer? Well, if they're not much older than three, they'll point to the blue cup, because they know that's where the gummy bear is. Theory of mind hasn't awoken in them, and they can't make the jump to another person's beliefs. We would instantly appreciate that Sally can't know that the gummy is under the blue. We would say Sally didn't see the change, and therefore would choose the red cup. Now, if you do the same experiment with the same group a year later, when the children are now between four and five, they will all make the leap of understanding without thinking and know what Sally's false belief would be. They would all point to the red cup. She would pick that, because she doesn't know the gummy bear has moved to the blue. The acquisition of theory of mind is perhaps the most important social character and cognitive development we make after language. Well, that's theory of mind at its most basic, the ability to know what another will know or not know about a situation. As it grows through childhood, amongst the neurotypical at least, this facility develops into subtler, richer emotional apprehensions of how others must be thinking and feeling. We begin to be able to understand people's intents and beliefs as we grow into fully equipped social beings evolved to cooperate and live with others. 
Nonetheless, we are often more likely to expect others to understand us more than we are willing to understand others. We demand an unfair exchange. Whether it's the sibling convinced their brother has been given a larger helping of chicken nuggets or the Honda Civic driver being overtaken by the Range Rover, we find it easy to see inequities that favour others and are often blind to our own good fortune. A wise person once laid out these two maxims. If you say it's all right for them, you are always wrong. If you say it's easy for you, you are always wrong. Always wrong, not because it isn't all right for them, although how can one really know, but because it's looking in the wrong direction. I'm aware you might be thinking that because I'm a lucky, 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 lucky bastard, you could reasonably point out to me, sure, Stephen, of course you disagree when people say it's all right for you. You want to protect what you've got. You think that people who are envious of you are overlooking your work, struggle and individual achievement. But the fact is you're a jammy bastard. I know, I know, I know. And the pity of it is is that I want just as much to shout at people who've got what I haven't and what I wish I had. Which of us, when in a dark mood of self-loathing or something approaching it, hasn't looked in at a lit house at night when driving past? The lights are on, the cars are in the drive, the lawn is well known, there's a Christmas tree. You can almost hear the laughter. I bet they're happy. Fun family lovely Labrador, good exam results. Bastards. Oh, look at her. She's just won an Oscar. Everyone loves her. Look at him. Look at them. Look, look, look. It's all about looking at them out there, not imagining what, it, what it's really like to be them, but being like the child who hasn't yet developed theory of mind. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the world isn't unfair or that it isn't right to protest inequity and injustice and to observe sometimes that the other man's grass is always greener, or as my wicked uncle liked to put it, the other man's ass is always cleaner. Of course, in political terms and as an outlook on the world, it is reasonable to make these observations. But if you say it or are consumed by it as regards individuals, then you're damning yourself to the destructive misery of self-corrosion by envy. And the root of envy, which seems a little puzzling at first, the root in the sense of the cause and also in the linguistic sense of derivation or etymological origin, the root is blindness. I talked about look, look, look at him, at her, at them. So how come blindness comes into it, you might reasonably ask? Well, the Latin word for envy, invidia, means just that, not seeing. Non video, I do not see. Invidia is taken to mean looking at others balefully, looking at others maliciously with hatred and resentment, but that is a kind of blindness. The Divine Comedy is that great epic poem in which the author 
Dante is led around the three kingdoms of the afterlife, heaven, purgatory and hell, by the poet Virgil, and shown the rewards and punishments that are meted out to various virtuous people and sinners, all of which are exquisitely tailored to their lives. Famously, the inner or ninth circle of hell is reserved for the very worst in Dante's eyes, the damned of the damned, those who betrayed their friends. Judas Iscariot and Brutus, notable amongst them. In Purgatorio, the middle work of the trilogy, Dante describes seven terraces, each one populated by those whose lives were dominated by each one of the seven deadly sins. On the second terrace, the envious stumble along under lead cloaks, their eyes tightly sewn shut with wire threads. Since to be envious is to look at others with hatred, resentment and malice, the envious are punished in purgatory with real blindness, so they can't look out at others at all, only inwards to themselves. It's a reminder, till purgatory ends, of how in life the envious are blind to what they have in themselves." Nelson Aldridge, uh, editor of the Paris Review, wrote that envy is so integral and painful a part of what animates human behavior in market societies that many people have forgotten the full meaning of the word, simplifying it into one of the symptoms of desire. It is that, a symptom of desire, which is why it flourishes in market societies, but envy is more or less than desire. It begins with the almost frantic sense of emptiness inside oneself, as if the pump of one's heart was sucking on air. Mm. The rich, famous, and favoured in life may dislike being envied and think it wrong, but who cares what they think? Envy is wrong, not because it lets them off the hook. Our sense of justice, fairness and decency can do all the work of envy in trying to bring about a better world. Envy is wrong because it is so corrosive and damaging to feel. Anger can harm other people, but envy only really hurts the envious one. Of course, envy can be caused by pride, motivated by avarice and turned to anger, sins which can harm others. It's best avoided. No, oh, how I envy those who are free of it. Maybe you have a point of view. A question or comment employing the hashtag 7figure7deadlysins via at Stephen Fry on Twitter or at Stephen Fry actually on Instagram will be gratefully received and eagerly fallen upon for discussion and ventilation in the final episode of this series. But next week, prepare to stuff yourselves with gluttony. Farewell. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. The show is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. Additional episode information can be found at stephenfry.com slash bananaskins. This has been a Sam Fry Limited production. Hold up. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.